Welcome to Ink and Pete, where memoir and Ireland share the stage. We talk with authors, guides, ghostwriters, and other free spirits drawn to memoir or enchanted by Ireland. I'm Barb Robitaille. And I'm Craig Stewart. draws instead from my unrepentant fascination with our species, from my addiction to laughter as the most civilizing music in the multiverse, and from a love of storytelling, a habit ingrained in the human psyche since the time of creation. George Plowski has lived a life brimming with adventure, in the sky, before the stage, and with his beloved wife, Rita. His memoir, Never a Dull Moment, Memoirs of Canadian Naval Aviation, Firebombing and Theater, captures on the page a collection of stories and lively anecdotes. In Ink and Pete, Episode 24, George recounts the choices he's made, his writing process, the role of luck, and finding the ultimate joy where and when he least expected it. In one of our email exchanges before we had the conversation, George found out that we lived just north of Seattle. And he's up in Vancouver, BC. And he made the comment, oh, if only I'd known that, we could have had this conversation over a fence. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so many of his stories are stories that you could imagine hearing over your neighbor's fence. You know, hey, George, tell me about when you this or that. Mm-hmm. You'd uh, run into him on the walkway and sit down on a bench and listen yeah. to these remarkable stories. Yeah, and they are remarkable. He started out his life in Nazi-occupied Poland, and then later escaped from Soviet-occupied Poland, and goes on to become a Royal Canadian Naval pilot, landing on aircraft carriers in the middle of the Atlantic, and then becoming a fire bomber. I mean, he's got plenty of stories, and a lot of them are just downright fun. They really are. It's like he made a choice to live life free, and to really embrace this living And I love that about him. And it's exciting, but not uncomplicated, his life. Yeah, well, I look forward to the day when we find that fence and head up the freeway and and pop a bottle of bubbly and just have him tell us some more stories. And meet Rita. And meet Rita. And I'm sure that it will not be a dull moment. (laughs) Until then, let's put the kettle on and have a listen to George Plowski. Good morning, George. Thank you for joining me on Ink and Pete. My pleasure, Craig. Good morning. You've written a fine book called Never a Dull Moment. To just begin a bit, you started out with, I would say, the furthest thing from dull moments with uh, living in, in a war-torn country and an occupied country. And you touch on that in the beginning. How did that feel when you wrote about that time? You know, I think it's necessary to create a distance between certain uh, things that happened. I don't write with tears in my eyes about my brother being shot at the age of 20 uh, and about our house being burned in 1939 deliberately by the Germans who found my father's Polish Navy uniforms in it uh, and uh, the circumstances that surrounded that. So as you found, you know, my, my writing isn't terribly heartfelt in some manner or another because I don't want to scare the audience away with uh, with with too much uh, arm you know cringing of of, of hands and uh, mm-hmm. you know what I'm trying to say but uh, yes indeed it so happens that my family has a fascinating background and history and this is why I chose to write about it my brother joined the Polish underground army, and he attempted to escape through Norway to to neutral Sweden. Unfortunately, the escape didn't pan out the way it should have, and of the 16 boys who tried, eight were shot, and he, he was one of them. It's something that my mother never lived down. 
But once the war was over and the Russians occupied Poland, it was just a change of uniforms, you know, it was just another occupation. My father discovered a method of getting people out of Poland by sending money to an organization which then arranged the escapes. It was a very, very iffy thing. And so this happened after she already managed to get me out of the country but because she was working for the Polish Red Cross and discovered that the Danes were uh, wished to bring two or three hundred Polish boys for, you know, an r and in, in Denmark. She managed to get my name on the list. I was accepted. And when I got to Denmark, of course, the Danes had been given a secret letter by her to contact my father in London. Within two weeks, he was there, and he stole me out of the camp. So, bingo, at least two of us were in England. Yeah. And then my mother, via this routing that I described, managed to cross two defended borders, Poland to Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia to Austria, and made it to the British legation, where she was almost turned over to the Russians by one of the agents. But anyway, a lot of luck, which I write a great deal about in my book, uh, had to take place for her to to finally find her way to join us in England. Right. Well, that opening bit about escaping and your your mother's escape, I would say there's not a single dull moment in that those events. And it sets it up beautifully for what comes next. You do talk a lot about luck in your book. How what would you think about the question or the, or the idea that you make your own luck or do you feel there's some sort of just being in the right place at the right time? I think there's a lot of everything that you mentioned in it. You know, there's the kind of luck, like a lady watched Ben Hogan score a hole in one, and she ran up to him and gushed. She said, my goodness, Mr. Hogan, you're so lucky. And he said, yes, and the more I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, nice, I like that, yeah. So that's, that, that's one kind of luck. The other kinds of luck, pure luck, is when something unexpected happens and you manage to avoid disaster. I can give you a number of examples, if you wish, a little later. But then there's, then there's the kind of luck that you make on your own, which isn't really luck. It's just that you succeed in getting somewhere well, you were in the right place at the right time. Okay, good. I don't want to give away too much of what goes on in your book. And, oh, uh, means do. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are two places that, that's, that come to mind. Let's start first with, you became a pilot in the Royal Canadian Navy. Now, what I think our listeners need to understand, you were flying prop planes and landing on a postage stamp in the middle of the ocean, pre-computers, pre-GPS, pre-any of the modern technological advantages we have today. That in and of itself is absolutely a stunning achievement. And I would say that luck, well, how, how did luck play into that, into you landing on a, finding the ship and, and landing on the aircraft carrier? There, there's a long history to uh, flying off aircraft carriers. All of it started by the Americans. And, you know, they did that during the war under even more primitive conditions and from even smaller, tiny little carriers. So we were simply following in the footsteps of great people who had already done the groundwork to it, if we can use that expression. Um, so... But we were trained for it. When uh, I did my training with the United States Navy in the, in the, in the training command in, in uh, Florida and uh, Texas, and with 100 hours under our belts, we were ready to do our first carrier qualifications. It's a question of training. They knew exactly when you were ready. This also 
gave them a chance to wash those people out who couldn't cut the mustard. We were beautifully trained, and the fact that we flew off a small carrier and all the rest of it, that, that added to the excitement of it. We, we, were, we were not unaware of risks that, uh, that this took, but we prided ourselves on, on doing it as well as we could. Sure, some people died, but, uh, but those that survived, you know, here we are. Here you are. We can talk about it. Yeah. Could you tell our listeners what it felt like to be catapulted from uh, going from zero to, I forget how many Gs it is, in, instantaneously? How, how, what was that like? Well, in, in about uh, 80 feet, you accelerate to uh, 90 knots, which is flying speed. So you're really hanging in there, you know. <laughs> you get your You've got to get your head back against a headrest. When you advance power, the throttles in the airplane I was flying were overhead throttles, and there was a little T-shaped gizmo that you pulled down, and you meshed the throttles in your hands against that gizmo so that when you get fired, flung off, you don't jerk the power back at a moment when you need it the most, and you keep your left elbow right in your in, in, in your stomach so you don't pull the yoke back and and you sit there and, and, until the shot is over which is <laughs> about a second and a half and then you're flying and then you're flying here yeah. we are okay <laughs> and so how far off the the level of the sea are you at this point when you just get catapulted 47 feet that was the height of the flight deck so on a on a black ass night when you don't see the horizon you're on instruments, right from the beginning, bouncing off the water, just look down upon. <laughs> well, I'm glad you can uh, joke about it. <laughs> yeah. So you went from the Royal Canadian Navy to a time where there was an interim time. You went back to school. You were drawn to, well, we can talk about theater in a minute, but you transferred your skills as a, as a pilot in the Navy into firebombing. Talk a little bit about that transition. Just uh, must have been exciting. Well, to begin with, I had a permanent commission in the Navy, but I knew deep in my heart that I was not senior officer material. Would you like me to read a, a, a short? Uh... Absolutely. Please do. Okay. So I decided to leave the Navy. It was now time to inform my friends that serving in the Navy had run its course and I was preparing for an amicable divorce. None of my squadron mates gave me a ghost of a chance. At your age, going back to school? Face the facts, Plowski, it's hopeless. How can you expect to adjust to a lifestyle requiring self-discipline, asceticism, restraint? Heaven only knows, maybe even abstinence. Not to mention <laughs> abstemiousness, which by itself rules out any hope of success. You're chucking away a Navy career full of excitement, travel, fabulous flying, limitless skirt chasing and nightly piss-ups, a regular paycheck and a bonhomie of your squadron colleagues who are your closest family. You haven't a clue about what you're going to study or where you're going to get the money. <laughs> These were so, sobering are, thoughts. Yes. The most sobering moment arrived when I realized that this was to be the last time I was entitled to wear my uniform. The golden ring stopped off by those coveted wings defined me as a member of a uniquely welded family and were the symbols of my identity. I cherished their impact and seeing them on my sleeve this final time made me bawl like a baby. The hardest part was bidding farewell to my squadron friends. Venerated confidants of an epoch of joy, danger, occasional sadness and unparalleled adventure. Was this truly what I wished? It had better be. <laughs> and so I went back to university. I didn't really know what I was going to study, but I needed to finish my degree because I was one year short of a degree. So I did. And one of my professors suggested that for postgraduate work, since I did very well in a course that I was taking from him, which was about restoration comedy, theater. Um, he said, why don't you think of theater? And I said, well, why didn't I think of that? I've always been fascinated by theater. I took part in 
in plays in, in the, the Navy and that sort of thing. So I, so I did that. And that led me into a, a brand new direction. As far as firebombing was concerned, I never even considered flying in civilian aviation. I didn't want to be an airline pilot because just putting on another uniform, it sounded to me like I wasn't going to be very happy. Yes, sure, all that money. But doing the same thing all the time, it didn't turn my crank. And then a girlfriend of mine suggested, well, you know, why don't you uh, find out about firebombing? You know? So I, I described it. I went over to Conair Aviation's hangar in Abbotsford, not far from Vancouver, and my goodness, they hired me. So another wonderful piece of luck because firebombing happened to dovetail with the uh, semesters at university absolutely perfectly. How could it be any better? <laughs> now, that's when you make your own luck, I would say. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I fell in love with firebombing. It was so right for my temperament. I was just absolutely, perfectly suited for that. And with theater, yeah, sure, I would have liked to have been an actor, but I quickly realized that uh, I wasn't going to be terribly good at that. So, you know, like George Bernard Shaw said, those that can't do, teach. <laughs> so, so I decided to be a director, which was a good move. <laughs> well, yeah, and then you create City Stage and uh, have a... Yeah, that, no, that was, that was uh, something very, very special, very different, if you like. Mm. Um, uh, Rita and I, my wife, uh, not my wife by, at that time yet, but we did a lot of traveling around the world. After returning from one of those, you know, we spent a lot of time in Paris because that's where her, her mother lived and, and, and her stepfather. And uh, I came back to Canada, not really knowing what to do. I really had my degree. And, uh, and then I discovered that there was a program organized by our liberal government to uh, help to alleviate the unemployment problem, uh, problem. And so what they did was they invented something called the Local Initiatives Program, a piece of outright socialism that I know is not popular in your country, <laughs> where if you presented a, uh, some kind of a project where you could employ people for in, in something or another for a period of time, they would uh, fund, give you the funds for it. So when I presented, uh, uh, you know, I asked them, what about a theater group? They said, perfect. So uh, it took a little while to, uh, to, to get it, but eventually I got the grant. And we started a theater, a lunch hour theater. It was perfect for Vancouver at that time. There was nothing like that uh, here. And I had already had some experience in lunch hour theater because I'd talked my way into directing a play in London in lunch hour, where I uh, directed uh, one of my uh, uh, translations of a Polish playwright whose name is Mrozek that I liked very much. So this was ideal. So this theater, and I was involved in that theater for uh, just over two years because I realized that I couldn't do theater and firebomb because I'd have absolutely no time to myself from one to the other without, without a break. Hey, whoa, you know, Stop uh, that. I said that, that's, <laughs> that's a non-starter. <laughs> I have to choose between one or the other. And going back to the book, you've made some, some stellar choices, I would say. So you knew what you needed. Yeah, the, this, this choice was an, kind of an obvious one. First of all, firebombing put the wine on the table, whereas uh, directing stage plays, I hundred dollars a week yeah. out of uh, out of what we were getting, you know. So it's uh, it was kind of a non-starter. Before we jump into firebombing, how did you decide to write a book? Have you been? Is that one of the things you do in your spare time, or? Well, uh, I, I've always done uh, some writing. I, I've written. 
short stories generally to do with things that happened in the Navy. They're always lighthearted. Finally, something, you know, uh, I don't know why, it's vanity and, and the desire to leave something behind, I suppose, is what drives us all. So I, I started to write, and then I got kind of involved in it, and I thought, this is stuff that's interesting me, and it might interest others. If I can phrase it in a way which, is, which makes good reading, then why not? So, you know, so I spent 6,000 bucks or whatever it was <laughs> <laughs> right. to, to have this thing done. <laughs> And, uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. How would you describe your writing practice? How did, you, how did you approach the actual writing? I like writing in the morning. I like to get up at five, make a coffee, everything's quiet, nobody phones, and, uh, you know, and, by, and, and the rest of the day is, is mine if I put in four or five hours. This is a postscript that I wrote, you know. That you, the reader, have traveled with me all this way flatters me to the core, and I'm deeply thankful for your company. As I hope I made it abundantly clear, this memorandum was not designed to serve up pearls of wisdom regarding the purpose of life or the meaning of existence, which has already been so capably covered by Monty Python. It draws instead from my unrepentant fascination with our species, from my addiction to laughter as the most civilizing music in the multiverse, and from a love of storytelling, a habit ingrained in the human psyche since the time of creation. Since this captivating journey of which I've been fortunate to be a part is rife with their examples, it seemed natural to wish to share my version of them with my fellow travelers. To have found Rita to embellish this odyssey with love, companionship, and guidance remains its most priceless blessing. That this chronicle serves to unearth the memory of the remarkable cast of personalities who enriched this grand adventure remains for me a source of particular satisfaction. Amen. <laughs> Lovely. That's well said. Well said. Life well lived. Never a dull moment. Good for you. Good for you. That's it's a terrific accomplishment of the many accomplishments you uh, have racked up in your life. And you decided to go to Freeze and Press because they are local Canadian, because you could publish through them, or how, how did that work? It was pretty well the, the first company that I approached, and they, they seemed to offer me the, the kind of help that I felt I would need. So uh, there was a proofreader who read my 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 book, my proofs, uh, was very helpful. I don't know if it was a he or a she, but I'm, I'm truly grateful for, for that input. And then uh, they taught me how to get stuff out, make small corrections, etc. with the program that they had. So it is very much a self-published uh, thing. You, you, you do most of it yourself. Nice. It's good. It was a challenge. Yes, and probably it appealed to your sense of directing, of managing your, your well, adventures. Well, I had to learn everything from scratch, you know. Ah, yeah. It wasn't that easy because I'm not, I'm not savvy with, uh, with, with the uh, internet stuff. So I have to kind of learn it all on my own. One of the questions I sent to you that I would like to go back to, you demonstrated a healthy respect for playing by the rules. For example, looking at your pre-flight checklist, and you mentioned that a couple of times, like how important that was when you were firebombing or, or any time you fly. But then you have an equally healthy disregard for convention or not accepting no for an answer, like when you went to Ottawa and, and sought funding for your theater. How do you choose when and whether or not to go buy the book, and especially in writing your own book? Well, uh Going by checklists is just professionalism in flying. That's what saves, That's what makes sure that you get back in one piece in the same way that you took off. There's nothing more to it than that. You have to be very thorough about that sort of thing. You do all your checklists, and then, then you know everything's being done. 
Well, what I, one of the things I noticed in your book was, George, was that you there were times where you didn't play by the rules and you had great fun doing things that Much were... so. Sorry? Much more so. Than <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. I just was curious. How... By, by the rules, you know, no, I, I, it's, it was not part of my temperament <laughs> at all. Right. You can be stupid about this sort of thing, too, you know. And uh, so uh, it, it's, I, I, I don't think I went that far to be, um, what's the name that I'm trying to think of? Somebody who absolutely discounts. Uh, everything about uh, anarchy. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I think of it. Yeah, but uh, maybe I came close. Well, <laughs> I suppose you're alive today because you never reached that level. Especially with one of the episodes in your book that comes to mind is the is a firebombing, and you mentioned one of your cohorts didn't necessarily follow the checklist, or it seemed like it, and it ended up with disastrous results. I don't know, I'm going out, out on a limb here. It seemed like you you worked hard and you partied hard. And sometimes there, it seemed like you had to make a very clear, hard, fast decision. Okay, party time is over. I'm behind the controls. I got to follow the checklist. I've got to do everything right. Or I'm going to end up like, or whatever his name was. Hungover or not, you follow the checklists. Yeah. And we flew a lot. Quite hungover. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes even not quite with a hangover yet. <laughs> I hate to admit it. There was a fair bit of partying going on. Well, I imagine you needed the release. For goodness sake. It seems pretty... Well, it, was just, it was just part of our life. It was, you know, you're with a bunch of guys your own age. And uh, it was, uh, that, that was what we did on, on board ship, you know. Uh, the camaraderie in the wardroom is is fantastic in a squadron. Everybody's uh, doing the same thing. Everybody knows what everybody's facing. And you become bonded to such an extent that today I have no friends from university. And all my friends, practically all my friends, are ex-Navy pilots. We get together uh, at one time, for 25 years, I organized an annual Naval Aviators Mess Dinner. They came from the whole continent for, for that event. And, and uh, it, it, this is something that's uh, absolutely bonded us together. We're a fraternity unlike any. It's the same with squadrons in, in, in the American uh, Navy as well, you know. With the exception that you can't drink on American ships. And nah. So you, you don't have that cohesive force, which, <laughs> which we have More is the pity. <laughs> <laughs> on a nightly basis. <laughs> what book would you recommend, other than your book, Never a Dull Moment, which I recommend? People can get it through Friesen Press, through yeah, Amazon? Press or Amazon, yes, any of those. Uh, and it comes in hardcover, hard softcover, or an ebook version. As you know, I'm interested in golf and played a lot of it. Well, a book I came across not so long ago was about, it was called The Grand Slam. It was the story of Bobby Locke, written by a fellow named Mark Frost. I truly recommend it, not just for the golf part, but the way he situated his story in the time, which is the first 30 years of of the 19th or 20th century. Wonderful read. I really, really recommend it. I happen to be reading a lot of Polish uh, literature. A Polish lady whose name is Olga Tokarczuk won the Nobel Prize for Literature in uh, 2018. I've read a couple of her books. Uh, one has this crazy title, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Imagine the chutzpah it would take to yeah. put a title like that for a book. It's a wonderful book. It's a mystery story, but it's it's absolutely terrific. And another one that I read by her, which in translation is called Flight in England, in English. Uh, I, I really recommend those because they're so different. And would you kindly spell out her name for us? Sure. Olga is O-L-G-A. 
And Tokarczuk is T-O-K-A-R-C-Z-U-K. Poetry in Polish is absolutely wonderful to read. It's because of the fact that you can change the tone, the meaning uh, of a word, not by adding an adjective to it, but by changing the ending. So you can modify the, the impact of the word in various ways. You can make it soft, you can make it cuddly, you can make it pleasant, or you can make it dangerous and, 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 and uh, offensive simply by changing the end of a word, which is a fabulous convention uh, <laughs> you know, linguistic trick. Yeah, would you give an example? Sure, okay. Uh, when I met Rita, on our first date, I started to uh, try to find little nicknames for her, you know, Rita, Richa, and then the word Kicha uh, occurred to me. Kicha is the diminutive of a cat. In Polish, kot is the word for a cat. Now, you can go kotek, koteczek, kotunia, kitush, kicha, etc. Those are in that direction. The other direction, you can say kochur or kochisko. Kochur is a dangerous cat. Kochisko is a nasty piece of work, you know? So this, uh, this ability of the language to give you this kind of flexibility works wonders in poetry, especially. And do you write poetry? Do you write Polish poetry? Yeah, I've, 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 I dabble in it. I like rhymed verse, so all my poetry is in rhymed verse. In Polish? Yeah, in Polish. No, 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 I don't. In... I'm not quite glib enough to write poetry in Polish. I can write a letter, but, uh, but not poetry. I would recommend for somebody that doesn't know much about Poland to read a book called A Question of Honor by two American writers, Olson and Cloud. This book is specifically about a squadron, Squadron 303, which basically got into the fray uh, in the Battle of Britain. Before that, they had they were escaping from Poland and organizing in France and ended up in England, formed a squadron. The English wouldn't let them uh, uh, go anywhere because they didn't speak the language and they had, you know, different habits. Like you can't hold the sons of bitches back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you don't just fly nicely in three-plane formations or five-plane vicks, you know, and look for the hunt. These guys were out to kill. And uh, they became the highest scoring squadron in, in, of, of any of the uh, air forces uh, during the war. It deals so much more with the Polish diaspora, of which we are a part. And uh, it, it dealt with what happened with these heroes after the war. They went back to Poland. And what happened to them? They were either locked up. Because, after all, they were tainted by contact with the West. So, under communism, this was treason right off the bat. Same thing happened to naval officers who, who agreed to go back to Poland after the war. After all, you know, their families were there, their homes were there, and all the rest of it. Yet, only 20% of Poles went back to Poland because they knew what was awaiting. What was awaiting, you know? yeah. Yeah, and I would strongly recommend uh, this because it's a very good read. It's exciting to read. Excellent. I love that time period. Very interested in um, everything to do with American musical theater. So I've, I've read a lot about, you know, it's, it's strange. When we first came to Canada, we didn't have any money or anything. Somebody gave us a gramophone, and among the records they gave us was... Uh, uh, Oklahoma. Oh. <laughs> I just I fell in love with it. I memorized all the lyrics within a month, you know, and then I followed up with Pajama Game and and Gigi and 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 all, all the the, the uh, musical theater of, of that time, you know. I just absolutely loved it. Uh, we used to perform these 
these songs and that sort of thing. You sing as well? Horribly, but, you know, <laughs> but nevertheless, loudly. And, and, With and spirit. With conviction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good for you. Good for you. Oh, what a life you've led. George, what a what a wonderful life you've hey, read, and thank you for yet. no no no. A lot of fun left. There's there are plenty of non dull moments ahead of you. Yeah. Let me ask a question before we wrap it up. Um, we didn't really talk a lot about firebombing, which I guess we could leave for the book itself uh, if people are interested in in firebombing. Unless you had some something you'd like to touch on. Well, yeah, you know, it's a flying unlike any other, and this is why it just suited me so well because every flight is different it's not like flying an airliner where you know you do the same thing you're on autopilot and you do the same thing over and over and you're going to be doing the same thing next month and next year and all the rest of it even though they give you a ton of money for it you know it's not to me as satisfying as being able to go out there and mess around with forest fires you know it's exciting, it's challenging, and, and it, it challenges your skills, and especially in the, in the pioneering days where I started firebombing. Now, there were a lot of fatalities, uh, as you've read in my book, you know, this Annus Horribilis, uh, 1974. We, lo- we lost uh, four airplanes in uh, British Columbia and three F-7Fs crashed in California where I had just been working uh, a few years before. And uh, it, was, it was just amazing. I thought that uh, the Ministry of Transport would shut the program down. You know, these guys are killing themselves. You know, in a month we lost a DC-6 uh, and three A-26s and, uh, and a bird dog, you know, and, and most of it was pilot error, mistakes, which unfortunately cost lives. Cost lives. And once again, this is pre-technology uh, that we have today, which probably helps firebombing a, a certain degree, would you say? Well, yes, it does, especially in training. For example, now, when you go to Conair, uh, this is professionalism to its on at its peak. They've got simulators which simulate every every situation that you can find in any airplane that you're flying. On real situations uh, in 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 the mountains, and uh, they can simulate uh, rough air and uh, uh, descending currents and smoke and everything else, you know. Well, none of that was available to us. There was no, no handbook uh, yeah. about it. Um, we learned from the guys who had done it before. Right. And some of the guys who had done it before had some wild ideas about how to do it. You know, it didn't last very long, so. Right. Now, one of the things that you made clear in your writing is when you... When you take off with your plane, you're loaded with with repellent and or water or what you've got a heavy load of X hundred gallons. And then the instant you drop that, you lose all that weight and your plane must. I mean, you have to be a very skilled pilot to deal with that, I would guess, especially with the smoke and the mountains coming up at you very fast and. No, that, that, that aspect of it, actually, yes, the airplane, if you drop, drop the entire load, uh, uh, which is actually unusual, they generally parcel the load out depending on the airplane that you fly. So an A-26 carried uh, 800, uh, uh, let's say 1,000 uh, U.S. gallons, and you had two doors. So you could drop one at a time or one after the other to make a longer line. Etc. The DC-6 that I flew for 16 years, now that had either 8 or 12 doors, usually 8. So you could, you could lay a line nearly a mile long if you go one after the other at half-second intervals, you see, and that sort of thing. When we first started out... You said half-second, half-second intervals. Half-second, yeah. About that, that's that. pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, boom, 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 or you, yeah. you can go a little longer. Um, the... Um, the, uh, the, con- the person who was controlling you in the bird dog 
would give you a, an interval, which eventually we had a computer that you could set the interval uh, for half a second or three quarters of, or one second between doors, etc., and how many doors you want to draw. Whereas in the, in, in the early days, this was up to the pilot to judge. So he'd say, okay, give me a tight drop uh, of four doors, for example, in such and such a place. So you go click, 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 you know. And if you want an extended drop, you go click, 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 you know. And it was all done by eye, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, you, get a, you get experienced at it. The actual, the moment that you drop, if you drop a full load, you do get a pitch-up and uh, sometimes a fairly violent pitch-up, especially if you happen to forget to drop your flaps. Then you're going for a ride. Or if you are going too fast, then this uh, pitch-up is very pronounced, you know. Uh, and But if you stick to the to the parameters and drop it at the given speed and uh, everything is right. It's very easy to control the pitch up by simply moving the control column forward and uh, and fly away and that's it. You make it sound very easy. I'm quite certain it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a question of training again, yeah. you know. Once you get used to doing it, look at Everybody who does things that astonishes us, whether it's in a circus or, or on a golf course or anywhere else, you know, it's all a question of practice and training. Thank you. That goes well as well for writing and publishing your book. Are you are you working on a second? The the uh... <laughs> no, I I don't want to risk a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Had to go through uh, many, many years of, uh, of widowhood. <laughs> I'm not capable anymore of uh, doing uh, this sort of thing. It's uh, age catches up to your brain. Well, you can continue writing stories and poetry, and you'll probably keep your hand oh, in I that. Oh, I can play with it, that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Sure. yeah. Mm -hmm. When have you found joy when you least expected it? Well, to synthesize it, it was when Rita first left me and I thought I'd never see her again and then came back into my life. That's the only thing that I could think of that that answered the question, which I loved, because you asked um, when you least expected it. And that kicker puts it into a different category than simply finding joy, which we can find examples of everywhere. But when you least expected it, I can start with meeting this lady. It happened at a pilot's party. Most of my Navy friends joined the airlines. I was already firebombing, came back from a season of, of uh, came back from firebombing, and it was a big party. And of course, Stuart and I were our main fodder, you know. Boy, were they ever. <laughs> and so, so, uh, I was at this party, and all of a sudden, one of my friends walks in with this pear, you know. And as my eyes devoured this petite, sweetly feline, natural beauty with the impossibly lovely face, my pulse quickened, and I realized that I'd forgotten how to breathe. Before I could, but, you know, these two girls just exuded, don't approach me, <laughs> didn't want to be there. They, they hated these pilots, you know. I later found out why, you know. But, you know, it took me a while, but after circling the pair from a safe distance, I summoned enough confidence to risk an overture. I don't exactly remember what she said, but from the moment those adorably accented words flowed from those alluring lips, all I wanted to do was cradle that angelic face in my hands and listen to her whisper them forever into my mouth. And then I ended up with, a, with in brackets, never underestimate the power of a hyperbole. <laughs> well done. But somehow I convinced her to join me by the pool, and she reluctantly allowed that she was German, living in Paris, and that her name was Rita. 
Christ, that's even less information than the Geneva Convention allows prisoners <laughs> of war to divulge to their captors. Anyway, I asked her for a number. Just to get rid of me, she spouted off some, some numbers. I wrote them down just in case, knowing it's a phony. But when I phoned, my goodness, Rita was Rita. When I phoned, she said, ah, this is not Rita. This is uh, her roommate. Well, that sticks a sock in your mouth when you get an answer like that. You know, how do you, uh, how do you get out of that, you know? <laughs> so, I, okay, I phoned a few days later. Once again, the same. A annoying, excruciating evasion, you know. I mean, I know, but, you know. Finally, I called, and Rita is suddenly Rita. And she, she felt safe because she was going away for a three-day layover in London. So I said to her, look, while you're in London, there's a terrific play running there. It's called, it's by Peter Schaffer, The Royal Hunt of the Sun, getting rave reviews. You've got to see it. Bit of a pause. You are interested in theater? I said, yeah, that, that's what I'm doing. I'm just starting my first year in, in, in postgraduate studies in directing. Silence. Something akin to a transformation appeared to be brewing on the other end of the line. Switching smoothly to a more casual tone, I decided to press my advantage. Maybe you can tell me about it when I collect you at the airport on your return. That's when Providence finally jabbed her in the butt with a sharp stick. Okay, she agreed. And three days later, I watched as this enchanting little blonde in the dark green Air Canada uniform and the cheeky bowler hat stepped off the airplane onto the tarmac at the south terminal of Vancouver Airport and changed our lives forever. Well, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, our relationship began to unfold like a fairy tale. Until meeting Rita, I had never returned, never nurtured notions of permanence in my relationships, but it wasn't long before my feelings began to undergo a mental morphosis. Another word for you. This infinitely intriguing creature who had unexpectedly burrowed into my existence was a person with whom I could broach the possibility of spending a serious chunk of a lifetime. I quickly recognized that beneath the beguiling flower-child exterior lurked an unexpected sophistication nurtured by classical French schooling, which had infused her with considerable knowledge and appreciation of history, art, and literature. She was a little bookworm stuffed with novels by French writers like Stendhal, Balzac, and Flaubert, and she was an avid reader of biographies. Additionally, I discovered that she possessed a formidable strength of character for which, for which, for me, had always been a powerful aphrodisiac. Her self-assurance, married unto her beguiling Europeanness, rendered the package irresistible. However, I felt like the co-star of a harlequin romance that unfolded blissfully page by page, fully expecting the next chapter to follow in seamless succession when Rita blindsided me with a bombshell. All along, there was this boyfriend in New York, you see. Uh, yes, and she was planning to meet her on the upcoming layover to Toronto. And since her conscience recoiled against seeing two admirers concurrently, his seniority prevailed, which meant that I had to <laughs> graceful bow and disappear in, into the smoke. Throughout this time, Rita was hardly forgotten, and painful memories boiled to the surface when I passed her walking arm in arm with her roommate. I believe it was sometime in February when I could stew no longer and gave her a call. As unexpected as her departure was, her apparent willingness to see me again reaffirmed Oscar Wilde's assertion that women are meant to be loved, not understood. It seemed that Dame Destiny had merely hiccuped, which hardly surprised me, as I had already tabbed her as an unpredictable harpy whom I'd always suspected of tippling. After we'd happily resumed our relationship, I decided to ask Rita if she would care to supply context to her attitude at Kenny's party when she, you know, didn't want to see me. 
Pilots, she replied. Pilots? What about them? I asked. They are cheap and only have one thing on their minds. Jesus, she's talking about my friends. Well, maybe <laughs> some of them, but, but she'd only been flying for five months. How could she have arrived at such an opinion? All of them, I asked, apprehensively. All the ones I met. But you knew I was a pilot. What made the difference? The royal hunt of the sun, she replied. But you never, you said you never even went to see it. It didn't matter, she said, a seraphic smile creasing her lips. Is that what separated me from the herd? Was it all because of theater? Well, if that is the case, then thank you, Aristophanes, Sophocles, and Euripides. Thank you, Marlowe or Bacon or the Earl of Oxford or whoever wrote those fabulous works attributed to Shakespeare. Thank you, you splendid playwrights of the Restoration. Thank you, Oscar Knoll and GBS, Pinter, Stoppard, and Roger, Simon, Mamet, and Albie, and even the unattended Peter Schaffer. Thank you all for contributing to this priceless gift and to the galaxy of gods above who oversee all that transpires, I send a single prayer. Please, gods, please, don't let me fuck up. <laughs> so she came back to my life. There you and go. that is the unexpected, you know, unexpectedness of, of that lovely question that you asked. Ah, well, it's got a lovely answer. Thank you, George Plasky. <laughs> Been wonderful talking with you. This has been such fun. I'm truly, I truly feel privileged. Uh, it'd be, maybe there's a fence in our future that we can talk over. Vancouver is, is uh, I love Vancouver. I mean, I have to say, it's uh, it's right up there near Ireland, not quite, but close as to one of my favorite places. Now, just uh, for our listeners, one last time, the Never a Dull Moment by George Plowski, and you can find it on Amazon. You can find it at Friesen Press. Friesen Press Bookstore. Okay. And then enter the name, uh, uh, my name, or uh, the name of the book. And, and uh, a Friesen Press Bookstore gives you everything that you need to order the book. Excellent. Thank you, George. That was a lovely conversation. Craig, I truly enjoyed it. I truly enjoyed it. I, I, I wish you luck with this wonderful endeavor that you are that you are. Uh, in, involved and engaged in. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Ink and Pete, a production of Memoir Tours Ireland. To learn more about Memoir Tours, head to memoirtours.com. Until next time, may you find joy where you least expect it.